Am I on there, Allison? All right. Thanks. Um, good to see you guys this morning. Um, I'm going to start out with a little science fact. We haven't done that, or I haven't done it in a while. And that science fact, I'll tell you a quick story after I give you the few of the... Well, maybe I'll tell the story first. So earlier this week, um, Steve Wood had invited me, uh, or maybe I invited myself to go hunting with him up in Unit 61. And I told him I really like being a pack mule and bugling and cow calling and getting on my binos and looking for critters. And so I went up with him for a few days, and we were uh, up on the Uncompagre Plateau. And one evening we were there, we decided it was a good idea to venture into the woods. And I just had this premonition to put on some rain gear. And so we, we drove up to the top of this plateau, and then we hiked in, I don't know, maybe about a mile or so, I would say about a mile. And there's a, there's a draw, a drainage there that we anticipated seeing some elk or hearing some elk bugling. So sure enough, elk were going crazy and screaming. It was, you know, late, late rut time. And so they're screaming, and we're dissecting the trees, like the Where's Waldo magazine, looking for just a an antler to shine or something and we look off to the south and and the sky when we got there was fairly clear and then as we looked to the south we saw that it had darkened and then we felt that first drop that you know what's coming right you know that first drop when you feel it now it's going to start pouring down so within about 20 minutes it is just raining cats and dogs and we're getting dumped on and so we just kind of shimmied under a tree and I've got a video to prove it and it was a little bit of hail but the thing that got me was the lightning. The lightning started to surround us. And I don't know if you've ever been in lightning where it was just right on top of you. Um, but it's, it's pretty intense. And at one point I walked about 50 yards up to this little knob and I looked over the knob. And I'm not kidding you, it, it, I, I saw the flash of lightning and the sound happen at the same time. It, like brightened my, it brightened my pupils and I turned around and I said, I just saw the lightning hit the ground. He goes, well, that's kind of odd for it to hit the bottom of a canyon like that. And I said, well, maybe I'm just imagining it, but it was, it was there. And I remember feeling extremely humble. And it wasn't a humility based on an excess of pride. It wasn't a humility like, you know, I bet you I'm the fastest guy in this room. And uh, if Matt were here and he wasn't chasing bad guys, he'd say, well, let's go outside and race. And I get beat by 10 yards. It's not me saying, you know, I think I'm the toughest guy in the room, and Denali says, hey, let's throw on some gloves and, and spar for a few rounds, because I'd last about three seconds. It's not that type of humility. It's the type of humility where you know you're in the presence of God's creation, and there's so much intensity, and there's so much power, and, and there's just this, this knowledge that you are, at any moment, your life's going to, you could get hit by lightning, at any moment. And there wasn't a fear. Am I over-exaggerating the feeling, Steve? There wasn't a fear that I was going to die because I feel like, you know, I've had enough close calls that God's got some work for me to do here on earth still. But there was this reverence going that at any moment God could just say, right next to you. And these facts about lightning that I've looked at um, are pretty cool. I I felt like, uh, let me just get through a few here. When lightning strikes a beach or sand or sandy soil, it, uh, it fuses the grains together and they create a small glass-like tube known as fulgurite. Some of you have seen this movie where this guy goes out to this island and the lightning flashes it and he makes glass beads or 
whatever out of it, vases, vases out of it, and they are, uh, they're, they're prized collections, and they also are a great scientific way to determine uh, the past occurrence of lightning storms. Another interesting thing is Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela has uh, got the most lightning strikes per year, and they average as many as 40,000 40, strikes in one night uh, at this lake in Venezuela. Uh, lightning can destroy trees, and the fact when it hits, it actually heats up the sap and the water, and it explodes the bark, and that's when you see it. Oftentimes, it'll splinter the tree as well. It's another cool fact about lightning. Lightning um, has something to do with nitrogen, and nitrogen's in the air all around us, but when lightning strikes... Uh, this process helps the bacteria and the algae and the extreme heat of the lightning causes nitrogen to bond with oxygen and create nitrogen oxides, which can bind with moisture in the air uh, to fall as rain and water plants with nitrate-rich water. Uh, anybody know how wide lightning is? Any idea? Throw out a guess. This is a different little church sanctuary than most. You're not just sit there and be quiet. Sometimes they ask you a question and you can respond, and if you're wrong... That's okay. Yes? Ten feet wide. Okay. Anybody else want to guess? Hundred feet wide. One foot. All right. Those are all guesses. Um, while the intensity of the lightning strike can make them appear as thick bolts across the sky, the actual width of a lightning bolt is about the width of a thumb. Two to three centimeters. The average length of a lightning bolt is about two to three miles, and it can reach up to 30,000 Celsius. That's five times hotter than the surface of the sun. And finally, did you know that in the late 18th century, they would ring church bells in order to ward off lightning bolts, and on many of the lightning bolts, the inscription would read, Fogara Frango, which means, I chase lightning. The practice was uh, stopped. The custom was banned in 19... Uh, between 1953 or 1753 and 1786 because 103 bell ringers were struck by lightning and killed. <laughs> so it's actually one of the worst places to be at the bell ringing off the uh, bell that says, I chase lightning. Anyway, some interesting things about lightning, but I remember while I was sitting there and we were looking for elk and the lightning was flashing around us, I began to think about Matthew 24 and Jesus talking about lightning. Um, so I just think some interesting things. When we're in nature like that, it's hard, it's hard not to think about the creator of the universe and his power. So last week, Rick gave a communion homily. And in his communion homily, he said, my goal is to be the best communion homily ever given. And then he corrected himself at Bible study and said, well, actually, I was going for the second best communion homily because I, I obviously am not going to beat the one that was done originally in Matthew uh, when Jesus gave, this is my body and this is my blood. Uh, I thought it was a very good communion homily. I would rank it up there with the top five that I've ever heard. Uh, I enjoyed it. It made me think. And one of the things that made me think about was the comment that Rick made about how awesome it would be to be lifted up in honor of being in the scriptures, to have your name mentioned in the Bible. And he brought up the example of King David. And we all know of King David. We've heard of King David. Even if you went to Bible school two or three times when you were a kid, you still heard about King David. And if you think about King David's his accomplishments, his attributes, I mean, he, he was selected uh, by the prophet. Samuel, is that right? Samuel selected him uh, among the brethren. And then 
he was also in a battle with someone much bigger than him, and he won the battle. And there's a story about David and Goliath. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as being one of the leaders or one of the, the men or women of faith that we're to look at as an example. So David's lifted up in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. His, his stories of his kingship and the battles won uh, are, are, are in writing for all of us to see. We see his, his, his name and his personality being explained as uh, a man after God's own heart. I mean, let's, let's give it up for David. <laughs> but then there's another passage that Rick had mentioned and alluded to, and in this passage, we're going to read it. Some of you have heard the story, and some of you haven't, but we're going to read the story because I think it's a pretty interesting story. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then also, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem the next day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in, front, in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king's account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, simply say, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. 
Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now those of you that come here uh, on a regular basis uh, recognize and realize I don't usually read 26 verses or 27 verses of Scripture. That was a long reading for me typically. Um, However, I felt it was important to read the story because many of us in church hear the story of David and Bathsheba, but we don't know the details. And I'll summarize the details. The details are this. David lusted after a woman. David planned evil in the eyes of God and man. David deceived. David committed adultery. David deceived again. David planned evil in the eyes of God and man. And David orchestrated murder. Oh, David, (laughs) your mother must be so proud. Now, before we sit here in judgment on David, and before we get angry at David, I want you to all do an exercise with me. Most of you have a piece of paper in your book, your Bible, and a pen. I want you to take the next, and if you don't, grab your phone out and go ahead and get your little notes section out, okay? And I want you to write a list of sins that you have committed in the last 30 years that we can go ahead and give to Jess, who was the leading typist in her high school class, And she's going to take all this information, she's going to type it up on a computer, she's going to cut and paste it, put it in a book, and then we're going to sell it, we're going to give it away, we're going to put it in every hotel cabinet, in every hotel room, and instead of putting Gideon's Bible, we're going to put Jess's notes on the congregation at Cornerstone Christian Church. So you've got five to seven minutes, go ahead, I'll wait. I'm going to need more than seven minutes, just to be honest with you. Rick's raising his hand too. We might have to do this on a Wednesday men's study. It's so easy to look at David's sins and feel holier than thou. Right? We see the wonderful things he's done. We see the life that he lived. But we also see the negative and the gross and the disgusting, and the lustful, and the evil, and the sinful things he's done, and we put that higher up, and we don't recognize that somebody came to take care of those. Somebody came to take care of those sins for David. And that's why he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now me personally, I would rather die I would rather die than sit up here and share with you in detail the sins of my life. (laughs) I shared uh, uh, a a little bit with Steve, not much. I tried to keep it G. But even Steve, I think, was going, wow, you you do have a past, don't you? Well, Steve's wise enough to know that all of us have a past. But I would rather die than share you the details. And thank 
God, I did die. And we're going to talk about that more a little bit later today. The sermon topic this morning is who we are in Jesus and what are the benefits of being in Christ. There's two terms there, in Jesus and in Christ, that we need to look at. And, or in Him is another one. And I think it's to understand what it means when the Scriptures say in Him. And I'm going to try and give you an example so it, it can resonate with you. So right now, I'm in this building, right? I'm in this building? Am I in the building anymore? No. Am I in the building? Okay, you get it. So, I'm in the building, I'm out of the building. There's a, it's really important to understand when we're looking at Scripture, you're in Christ, you're outside of Christ. You're in the building, you're outside of the building. You're in a car, you're outside of a car. You're, you've made it into the ranch, you've got a locked gate and there's a gate there and I've made it into the ranch. If I come on this side of the gate, I'm outside of the ranch. If I go inside the gate, I'm inside the ranch. I just took a course in Utah this last week, 30 hours of continuing or beginning education for law and things like that for general contractors. And they were very clear. If you are not inside the classroom, you will be marked absent. You have to be here for all 30 hours. I don't care if you sleep, if you're texting, you're on your email, but you have to be inside the classroom to be considered present. If you're outside, I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but you guys understand what I'm saying. There's inside and there's outside. I'm going to give you one example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he has to write this letter because there's some weird stuff going on, some sinful things going on, and he's saying there's some, some things happening within the church you guys need to deal with as church members, as the body of Christ you need to deal with. And so at the end of chapter 5, he asks a rhetorical question. Paul writes a rhetorical question to the church at Corinth, and he says, What business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the church? As a side note, a lot of Christians struggle with that today. We look at people that are in the world, and we're passing judgment on them, and they don't even claim to be Christians. They don't even claim to be part of the church, and yet we're judging them. And that is contrary to to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, the, the, letter to, the first letter they wrote to the church of Corinth. He said, what business it is, is it of mine to judge the church? He goes, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So what he's saying is, if somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus, they claim to be part of the church, they claim to be Christians, and they're doing things contrary to Scripture, it is our responsibility to say, brother, sister, we need to talk. This is what the Lord says. If they're outside of the church and they don't love God and they say they don't want anything to do with God, it's not a job to say, hey, we need to talk. Is that making sense? And so is he talking about a building or is he talking about a group of people? A body, a body of Christ, people. He's not talking about bricks and mortar here when he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He's not talking about bricks and mortar, drywall, and all that stuff. He's talking about the church body. The reason I bring that up is it's important to understand this, this in Christ passage and these in Christ passages we're going to look at. And it's important to point out that it's not the idea that I have faith in Christ, there's very specific teachings in the New Testament throughout the entire New Testament 
there's hundreds of verses, literally hundreds of verses, that talk about in Him, in Christ, in Jesus. And some people say, I have faith in Christ. Okay? That's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is in Christ, in the body of Christ, in Jesus, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. It is in Him, in the church, in the body of Christ, in Jesus, we have these things. I, I want to, Ephesians 1 is a good example, but real quick. I have faith in the building, meaning I have faith that this is not going to fall on us today. I can be anywhere in the country, I can be anywhere in the world, and I can be outside of this church, this building, and I can say, I have faith that these beams are not going to fall. Okay? Or I can say, in the building, I have faith. Inside the building, I, how do I, this was really hard for me when I put this together because my brain doesn't always work. So I'm just going to read scripture instead of trying to explain it. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him, in him, meaning in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. Meaning in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. When I'm in the body of Christ, when I'm in Jesus, I have obtained the inheritance. And then it says, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and so now it's not talking about us being in Christ, it's talking about us having hope in what he's done. Do you see the distinction? Someone else explain it, please, if I'm not doing a good job. I need you to understand this in order for me to go on with the sermon, or we're just going to go get lunch. We have, we're in Christ, and there's all these blessings when we are in Christ. That is different from someone saying, I have faith in Christ. The reason I say that is every time we look at the scripture, when it says in Christ or in Him, it's not referring to the promises we have in Him. It may be referring to the fact that we have faith in Him. Did I say that right, Rachel? Okay. If you don't understand at this point, come talk to me afterwards and I'll try and explain it again. Not because you can't understand, because I can't communicate well sometimes, according to Brenda. So, everybody else that I know. In Christ, there are some scriptures we're going to look at, and I'm not going to read through this entire list of scriptures. There's five pages of scriptures. I'm, not going to look, I'm just going to highlight a few things that the Bible says, it's important to understand, the Bible says are the benefits of being in Christ. Not the benefits of believing in Christ, but the benefits of being in Christ. We are justified, made up right, right standing with God through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has freed me from the law of sin of death in Christ Jesus. We are consecrated, purified, made holy in Christ Jesus. The grace of God which was bestowed upon us is in Christ Jesus. All were made alive in Christ. God who confirms makes us steadfast and establishes us in Christ. In Christ we are always led in triumph. In Christ we are a new creation. In Christ we are all sons of God. In Christ we are all one. In Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. In Christ, we have the immeasurable riches of His free grace, His kindness, and His goodness. In Christ, we are God's own handiwork. 
In Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near. In Christ, we have the supreme heavenly prize. In Christ, we have God's peace. We have God's understanding. And our hearts are guarded and our minds are guarded in Christ. In Christ, God will supply our every need. In Christ, those who have departed in this life will rise first. In Christ, we have grace. In Christ, we have the promise of life. I'm only going to read a half more page because it just continues. In Christ, we have the grace of spiritual blessings. In Christ, that we may obtain salvation. In Christ, every good thing is ours. In Christ, we have eternal glory. In Christ is life. In Christ, we live, we move, and we have our being. I mean, this is, this is 20% of the scriptures, of just the ones that I pulled off out of the scriptures. It's, just, it's, it's redundant. The blessings that are constantly found in Christ. One commentator said, Redemption is found in Christ. There is no condemnation to those in Christ. The love of God is found in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Christ, we are new creatures. In Christ, we are reconciled back to God by being in Christ. We are children of God by being in Christ. All blessings are found in Christ. We are made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And the grace of God is found in Christ. And eternal life is found in Christ. Do any of those sound bad? I mean, I spent, I'm going to say, about eight years resisting the blessings that came and that come from being in Him. I'm not going to count the 27 years because the first 10 or 14 years or whatever it was, I was completely ignorant. So over 10 years, I would say, I resisted the blessings that are found in Christ. I refused to accept them. I thought there was better ways. I thought there's other things we could do. I thought there's other things I could do. I thought, man, this is just maybe I can have some and not the rest. Maybe I can pick and choose. Maybe I can ride the fence. Maybe I can accept some and not the other. And I can still have the joy that I see in other people who genuinely love God and are living a life that seemed to be in line with the scriptures. And I fought it and I fought it and I fought it. That's why I don't want to create that list. Personally, I've never killed anybody or had anybody killed. I've come close on accident a couple of times. But I've never intentionally tried to get somebody killed. But my own list of sins would be embarrassing to me. Until I got to the part that says, oh, by the way, uh, they're forgiven. They're forgotten. As far as the East is from the West. That's what, Jesus, that's what Jesus' death on the cross gave to us. We can deny it. We can say, no, that's not true. But then that's doubting what God said He would do or doing what He said He would do. Because He did it. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. So I can resonate on all the things in my past and I can focus on those things and I can dwell on those things or I can do what Hebrews says and that's to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I can look ahead and not behind. And I tell some people once in a while, hey, drive through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. Don't keep looking back. And also, don't look at other people and say, well, you've done this, 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 and this, because then you're just helping them drive through the rearview mirror. 
Instead, you can say, look ahead. Look and see what God has done for us if we accept it, if we choose it. And so when I look at these blessings, of the, the, the small percentage of blessings that I've mentioned that are in Christ, that are very clearly in Him, I often wonder, why did I fight it so much? One, because of ignorance, and another because of fear. You don't know what you don't know. And C.S. Lewis says that man or heaven understands hell, but hell doesn't understand heaven. We can look on this side of the fence, on being on God's side, being inside the church, and look at other people, and we can have two reactions. We can say, oh, those worthless sinners, I can't believe they won't recognize them. Or we can have empathy and say, oh man, those sinners, they don't recognize that somebody died for them. And they can have freedom. And I'm not talking about freedom, you know, just in this life, but freedom for eternity. And it's not a fairy tale. I mean, when you stand in a lightning storm, you better recognize that God exists. I don't know how you couldn't. When you feel the energy and the hair on your arm standing up a little bit, and you go, that was awesome. There wasn't fear there. There was a little bit of, oh man, that was close. But there wasn't a genuine fear. It was like, wow. Wow, that was awesome. God just spoke to me and he says, boom. And I was like, whoa. Steve, I got to repent about something real quick. I think it's getting close to the end here. <laughs> oh, man. You got you to gotta recognize when you're in situations or just driving or seeing a little one. I mean, recognize who God is and what he's done. And the blessings that we have that are found in him. Goodness. I mentioned earlier that I died. Thank God I died. I know a gentleman. I know of a gentleman who led a young man to the Lord. And that young man said, I'm going to need about a week. I want to send out an invitation. I want my entire family and friends to be a part of this, this, uh, this baptism at this, at this church body. He said, okay. What, are you gonna, what kind of invitation? He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a funeral notice. The young man made a funeral notice. A funeral notice. And he sent it out to all of his friends and family. He said, I just want to let you know I'm about to die next week. And I want you to be there. What does that mean? I don't get it. Well, I'm going to try and explain it to you. The scriptures mention and allude to a death constantly. Throughout the Bible, it alludes to a death. And it's actually talking about our death. I'm going to read a few verses here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. First Peter says, excuse me, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Mark chapter 8 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Romans 6 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Colossians 3 says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. In the book of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says in John chapter 12, Starting in verse 20, he says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, 
who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, I mentioned about this death when I said I died. I did an interesting study years ago, and I wanted to understand these in him passages. And I'm going to confess to you, when I started writing this sermon, the next topic about death had nothing to do with the message. But that's where my pen continued to go. And when I heard Justin preach about follow me, and I heard Trees preach last week, I made two pages of notes And on those notes, the next topic was not in my notes. But as I was reading and as I was studying and as I was writing, it just naturally geared towards this subject found in Romans chapter 6. And when it's talking about a death, it's talking about our death. And in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, this concept about our death is what Paul's referring to. And he asks a rhetorical question when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And what he's writing to the people in Rome is these these Christians in Rome, and if you look back in Romans chapter 1, it says, "To, uh, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to Christians. And he says to these Christians, he writes them, what shall we say then? And you've got to understand when you read the Bible, you're just reading a letter written by one person to another. If you're reading the New Testament. If you're reading the Old Testament, it's a prophet writing about the nation of Israel or writing poetry or writing history. But in this particular letter, this is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. So these groups of people, this group of people met in Rome and Paul says to them, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The argument was that grace is so amazing, unmerited favor is so great that if we continue to sin, we're actually doing God a favor because He has to increase grace to cover that sin. That is backwards. I'm going to sin so that grace can abound. And He says, by no means, and in the, in the original translation, I believe it says, God forbid. God forbid that way of thinking. And then He goes on to talk about their death. And he says, we died to sin. We died to sin. And I read several passages earlier about a death to sin. He says, we died to sin. Or don't you know that all of us, not some of us, but all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So he's saying, for all of us who were baptized into Christ... You were baptized into Christ's death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him, like this, baptism, in his death, 
we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So when I go back to that 14, 15 years old to 25, 26 years old and I start making that list and I think of all the sin that was just had me captive. I mean, it had me in chains. And then when I look at this scripture, when it says, for we know, he's being confident with the people in Rome, with the Christians, to the people loved by God and called to be saints in Rome, for we know that our old self, our old self was crucified. So that the body of sin might be done away with because we have been freed from sin. So when I look at the scriptures and he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I look at that and I'm like, okay. I look at all the blessings that it says in Christ. The blessings we have in Christ. Does the scripture anywhere tell us how we get into Christ? It does. Dennis is saying yes. There's several places. The two most in-your-face passages are Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 3. In Romans chapter 6, it says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, in Galatians chapter 3, says the same thing. Like I said, my sermon was not about baptism today. That wasn't what I had planned on. I began writing and reading and going, man, blessings and blessings and blessings and blessings and all these blessings are in Him. And I wrote, I find it telling that the blessings I spoke on earlier are found in Christ and found in Him and they're not found outside of Christ and they're not found outside of Him. So I want to be in Christ because I want those blessings. Consider me selfish. (laughs) Okay? I want no condemnation. I want every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I want redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. I want those things. I need those things. They're not optional for me. They're not optional for you. They're not. And so when I look at these scriptures and I go, man, the writer, the same writer of Romans wrote the letter to the church in Galatia and he says that these are the blessings and this is how you are entered into Christ. And I don't know why churches today refuse to teach it. It doesn't make sense to me. Spiritually. Why would you lie about what the Scripture says about how to get into Christ? Why would you keep those blessings from God's creation? If there were 500 people here, I'd be preaching the same message. It wouldn't change. Because the scriptures are so clear about it, and I want to be able to say on the day that I stand or kneel before the Father, when he says, why did you teach this, son? Or maybe he's going to say, why did you teach this, son? I don't know how he's going to say it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to look at him. I don't know if I'm going to be on bended knee. I don't know if I'll be crying, trembling. I don't know if my eyes will be like. I don't know what it's going to be like. But if he asks me, why did you teach that? I want to be able to say 
well, Father, here's my understanding. If I can even speak, this is why I taught that. This is why I taught that. If we're not honest with Scripture, all we're doing is kicking the can to have to give an account for everything we said and taught and believed. That's it. We're just kicking it ahead. We're going to deal with it at some point. So you might as well be honest with yourselves today and say, wow, I want those blessings. I need those blessings. And the blessings, according to Romans 6 and Galatians 3 and many other passages, if you want to come argue with me, if you want to debate with me, if you have questions, please come ask me. You will not hear me say, oh, we'll talk later. Oh, I don't believe. No, enlighten me. Help me understand at at a deeper level. So that I'm not standing up here saying, oh, Rachel, you want blessings in Christ? Here's what the Bible says. Here's how you get them. Here's how you enter into Christ, which she already has. Is that making sense? Yeah? Okay. That lightning was so awesome. I kind of want to be back there, but there's a little bit of, I don't know, know, nervousness, but I think I already said it, but it was so loud and bright, and I was drier than Steve because he didn't believe me that it was going to rain. <laughs> uh, but it was kind of neat to say, yeah, we can sit here as long as you want, Nate. He's soaking wet. It was good. My last paragraph here is, if you have never been baptized and you want to, come see me. Let's talk about it. Let's just look scripturally what it says about it. Let's throw away preconceived ideas. And and if it's a six-month Bible study, if it's a year Bible study, if it's two days, two minutes, whatever. Let's understand what the Bible says about baptism. Let's understand what it says about repentance. Repentance. Let's understand what it says about faith. Like I said, if you want to debate, if you want to argue, if you want to disagree, come see me. I love all you guys. Genuinely love human beings. And I want them to come to truth. I want to know truth. So I'm open to those conversations. In fact, I I relish them. I enjoy them. Um, This morning, we have a special uh, blessing on a special young boy. In case you didn't know, that concludes my message for the day. Afterwards, after communion, uh, we have a blessing upon uh, a young boy named Noah and his parents. Um, so after you, you, who's doing communion today? Who has communion, Steve? After communion, if you wouldn't mind grabbing a seat, and uh, it, it won't take but a few minutes, but definitely want to uh, have you guys be a part of it. So uh, we'll go ahead and do communion after Steve's uh, second only to Rick's homily. And then uh, sit back down and, and I'll come back up.